Today we still continue on in the Gospel of John. I was realizing this week that we are, um, I believe this is the ninth week in the series and we're four chapters in. And I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying slowly going through the book. I I hope you guys are too. Um, There's no need to rush through God's Word. God is not concerned with us consuming massive quantities at once. He's concerned with us hearing from Him through it. But today we'll take a massive quantity all at once. Today we're going to look at a, um, a story you've probably heard of before, but before we do, let me, let me flip us over into the book of Luke. I'll read you a story from the book of Luke that I assume you've heard before. If you want to read it with me, you could go over to Luke chapter 10. If you don't and you want to just trust me, it's in there, you could listen. I recommend taking a look. In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30, it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure you've heard it before, somewhere or another. The focus is on the Good Samaritan, the guy who stops. The other guy, the guy who gets helped. What do we know about him from that story? You know his name, where he lived, what he said to the Good Samaritan for helping him, what he did after he was helped by the Good Samaritan. We don't know any of that, but, but I think it would be incredibly interesting to find out, wouldn't it? Shouldn't they have added that story? Shouldn't God have at least given us, you know, somewhere else in the Bible, the story of what happened to the guy who was helped? Well, guess what? Today, in John chapter 4, we have John's version of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's from the other perspective. In Luke, it's a parable. A parable is a a story to communicate a truth. In John 4, we have a historical event. And it's John's version of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The focus is not on the one who stopped, but on the one who was helped. So today we're going to take a look at this. And instead of reading the whole chunk to you at once, I'll break it down little by little. And then we'll get into the application and see how that goes. John chapter 4, it says... Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, you remember last week we talked about a man after God's own heart, John in the wilderness, Jesus came by. It says, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he being Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Judea, Galilee. Imagine a map. North, south. Jesus is going from one end to the other, and in between the two sits a land called Samaria. Before we talk about Samaria, let me ask you a question. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. What does that mean, Jesus had to pass? I guess I asked that differently. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Did people make him have to pass? Was it too dangerous for him to go another way? It says right there, he had to pass. You ever think about why? Can we make Could we have made Jesus do something? Meaning, if we were living at the time, and Jesus was going to move through, could we have have set a, a mighty military force and say, Jesus, you can't come this way, so he would have to go the other way? 
Could someone have said, Jesus, you have to die, so he dies. Could anyone make Jesus do anything? No. But yet it says he had to pass through Samaria. Do you know why he had to pass through Samaria? He had a divinely orchestrated appointment. Jesus had to go because it was God's will for him to go. And he always does God's will. He, in fact, is God, no? So he passes through Samaria. What's Samaria? What does that mean to you? You heard the parable of the good Samaritan, guy from Samaria. Jesus is walking through Samaria. And if we're honest, we're kind of like, uh-huh, okay, right? What's Samaria? Way back in the day, there was a guy named David. And he established Jerusalem as the center, the capital of the kingdom, right? And he had a son named Solomon who built a temple in Jerusalem. Then there was a, a battle, and the kingdom split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. Jerusalem, let me get my, uh, yes, Jerusalem was the capital then of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom built the capital under King Omri. You know what the capital of the northern kingdom was? Samaria. If you don't believe me, it's in 1 Kings chapter 16. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And when they conquered it, they ripped the Jews out of the northern kingdom and they put pagans in to replace them. When those pagans came in, there were a few Jews left behind, but they brought a lot of pagan practices with them. And what happened was when the Jews returned from captivity from the Assyrian invasion, they, they repopulated the land by intermarrying with the pagans who lived there. And the people who now became the population of Samaria were this pagan-Jewish mixture. The problem was that there was a spiritual mixture that took place too. The Samaritans, pagan-Jew um, combination, had a syncretistic religious belief. Big fancy word. You know what it means? They took a hodgepodge of different things and mixed them together. I think I've heard of that happening somewhere else. They took all these different things, what they liked, and they mixed it all together, and they called it their belief. That was their God that they worshipped. And there was a ton of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans because they viewed the Samaritans as racial half-breeds and spiritual half-breeds as well. Years and years of animosity. Uh, some point around the end of the second century, the temple, the Samaritans built a temple um, it, right next to Sychar, Mount Gerizim, where they worship, a temple other than the one in Jerusalem. It was knocked down at the end of the second century, and this was a group of people that Jews hated. So, what would people be thinking of when they heard of the Samaritans? Think of a Jew and a Nazi. It's about as bad as it gets. It wasn't just, oh, Samaria. It was like, oh, Samaria. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So, if you're reading this as a Jew at this time, you're like, what? It's like saying... The Jew had to go have lunch with Adolf Hitler. What do you mean, had to? So you understand a little bit about the backdrop. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. What time's the sixth hour? High noon. Tot. It's hot in Samaria at noon. People don't go anywhere at noon, especially to wells. So if you were walking by, say as a Pharisee, you'd think, first of all, Jesus, what are you doing in Samaria? Second of all, why are you sitting by a well by yourself at high noon? You've lost your mind, no? Notice, though, he's also in Sychar. This well is right by the location of the Samaritan false temple. 
A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Coincidence, huh? Coincidences don't exist. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, stop there for a minute. A couple things. The woman came in the middle of the day by herself. Why? This was a, a woman who was outcast and ostracized and lonely. Usually women would come in groups in the morning or in the evening. Say he comes in the middle of the day when nobody would see her. And as she approaches, there's a Jew sitting there, and the Jew says to her, give me a drink. Whoa. See, first, he's not supposed to be there. It's Samaria. Second, culturally speaking, men did not interact with women, especially in those types of settings. That was just flat out unheard of. Third, give me a drink means let me drink from your utensil. That's about as ceremonially unclean as you can get as a Jew. This is outrageous what's going on here. We can read in the story, oh, Jesus hanging out in a dusty area by a well, a lady comes by and asks for a drink. No. This is about as bad as it can get. Doesn't sound like a guy concerned about his reputation, does it? So he says to the woman, give me a drink. Comes across as a little harsh. Woman, give me a drink. Kind of like when he said to his mother, woman. This is an incredibly loving statement by Jesus. He's saying woman, which remembers the term of respect and endearment. He's saying, ma'am, can I have a sip of water? She says, why are you even talking to me? Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's actually a little bit off of a translation. Where are the disciples? They went to get food in Samaria. They had interaction. They didn't use the utensils as more of the gist of what's trying to be communicated there. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying you give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Living water. What's he talking about? Himself, right? Why does he call himself living water? Isn't that a strange... It's like Aquaman. Jesus was, I am Aquaman, living water. Why living water? I mean, the man's got issues. No, he refers to, if I was going to give nicknames, I would be like, not, I am bread, living bread. I am living water. I am the true vine. Like, these are not good superhero names. Why does he go with living water? You do need water to live. But what would that mean to, to a Samaritan woman? What would that mean to, to an early reader, a Jewish reader? What would that mean to someone incredibly fluent with the scriptures? Why living water? That's what I love about God. This is not the only thing I love about God. Jesus speaks so clearly, and we miss it so drastically. We do this too. I am the living water, and the woman says, where are you going to get this living water? Do you know what living water can mean? Fresh water. See, there, there could be stale water that sits in a pit or fresh flowing water that was referred to as living water. Guess what was in the well? Living water. Literal. Oh, well, how are you going to get the water out of the well? That's not what he's talking about, is it? He's talking about living water as a different type of water. You want to know what he's talking about? You want to know what we're supposed to know from this? You flip back with me to the book of Isaiah. Everybody's favorite book. You know those memory verses no one really wants to memorize? When you start going through them, 
this stuff starts making more sense. Let's start in Isaiah 12. In Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people, proclaim that His name is exalted. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Go ahead, flip forward to 49.10. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Flip back. I'm going to wear these pages out to 44.3, and it says... For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing upon your descendants. And just one more. You go to Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I'm just in Isaiah there. You know what Jesus is saying when he says, I am living water? Real clearly. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. It's better than, I am Aquaman. He's saying, I'm God. We miss that so easily. We just go by and we take terms like living water and bread of life, and they're just common phrases we know. These are prophetic passages throughout the Old Testament that will be super clear to Jews in particular, to anyone that knew God's word. But remember I said a moment ago that the uh, Samaritans had had a hodgepodge of religious beliefs? They only took the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What book didn't you hear in there? So how the heck would they know what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the living water? Two points on that. Point one. If we don't know what God's word says, we ain't going to know what God's saying when he talks to us. You ever hear someone say, do you ever say it yourself? I just don't know what God wants me to do. I just don't know God's will. I don't know how you can know God's will. It's so confusing. I can't hear from God. He seems so distant. What's living water without that? I don't know. Is the fresh water flowing in the, in the well? The first problem you will have with the neglect of God's word is you will not understand what he's talking about a lot of the time. If you want to know his will, you've got to know his word. If you want to know who he is, you've got to know his word. Otherwise, you're going to make up your own understanding of it And when God says something like, I am living water, you're going to go, huh? You live at the bottom of a well? Second thing, interesting little side note. Why would Jesus say this to a Samaritan woman? Isn't that kind of being mean? He knows she doesn't know the Bible, but he's telling her what the Bible has to say. It kind of puts her in a bad spot. But here's something. The Samaritans in their liturgy, in their religious belief system, expected a Messiah who would be known as a Tahib. And one of the things that the Tahib said is that when he would come, that water should flow from his buckets. Isn't that kind of interesting? That Jesus will speak to the woman at a level she could understand because she's waiting for a false Messiah. And it's kind of like when Paul says, you worship a God that you do not know. Let me introduce you to this God, Paul the Areopagus in Acts. Jesus says, you're waiting for a a Messiah 
who's never going to come, who says that water shall flow from his buckets. Watch. I'll pour it out of my buckets for you. All that from the living water, huh? The woman said, you don't have anything. Are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She wants the cheap version of Jesus, right? It's kind of embarrassing coming out in the middle of the day by myself in the hot, dusty portion of the day. Give me some of what you got so I don't have to come back. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Why, why did he say that? You know where this is going, right? Couldn't he have been a, Ma'am, I love you. I'm God and I forgive you. He says, go get your husband. It's kind of like, eh. He knows what she's going to say. What does she say? I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You're right. You're right when you say you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you uh, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Uh-huh. What would most people say at that point? What kind of business is that of yours? Who are you? Who are you to point out what's wrong with me? Well, maybe you don't have five or six husbands, but you got problems, don't you? That's not what she says. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Okay, that makes no sense. Go get your husband. I perceive you're a prophet. Are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem or here in Samaria? What? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. When He comes... He will tell us all things. What does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. Take a look through the Gospels. When does Jesus so clearly announce who he is? You won't find it. Here is the only place he's telling someone as clear as day. He, he says he's God. He says he's a Messiah. But this clearly, only here. To who? An adulterous Samaritan woman at the well at noon. Why? We'll talk about that. Just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, What do you see, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's stop there. The parable of the Good Samaritan starts with, a guy walking by down the road and sees someone beaten up, sitting in a bunch of blood and mess, who needs help. Coincidentally, came across him, right? Does Jesus coincidentally come across the woman at the well? He had to go there. It's a divinely orchestrated appointment. It didn't start that morning. Oh, Dad, what do you want me to do today? Go to Samaria. What? Samaria? Go to Samaria. Fine, I got it. Guys, got to go to Samaria. That's not how it went down. This divinely orchestrated apartment started way back in the beginning 
Remember John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in there, we see that the Word created all things. When that, when that creation happened, boom, there was a mark on the day planner. You know what the mark was? Meet woman at well, 12 o'clock. Thousands and thousands of years later, Jesus showed up for the meeting. You see, in our culture, people often are trying to find God, right? I am looking for God. I'm trying to find myself and find God. I'm going to go on a journey to find out who God is. That's just flat out stupid. Because God's not lost. God, where are you? He's like, help, I'm in the woods. Help, I'm in the woods. We got it backwards. We're in the woods. We're lost with a blindfold and beaten up. And guess who comes in hot pursuit? Remember Roscoe P. Coltrane from the Dukes of Hazzard? Guess who comes down from heaven in hot pursuit of people who are lost? Jesus. He doesn't just kind of stumble across us. He pursues us. Who does he pursue? Well, the, the noble, the, the powerful, the people he can use, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers, the, the kings, the, the powerful people of the world. Jesus pursues them because they have more value. No. Who does he pursue? The down and outs, the sinners. The, uh, there's a passage in Matthew 9, 12. Jesus tells us who he came for. I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick, is what he's saying. Who's sick? Everybody's sick. But he came for those who recognize they have an illness. Samaritan woman recognized she was down and out, no? It's kind of hard to when you're coming to the well at noon. Who does God pursue? The down and outs. Problem one we have with our faith. Do you realize you're down and out? Parable of the Good Samaritan, we like to look at the Good Samaritan and say, oh look, this is what we should do, we should stop and help people. True. But what we miss in the parable of the Good Samaritan is, who represents us better? The Good Samaritan who stops or the guy busted up on the side of the road? You see, we live in a gutter. We're down and out. The woman, Jesus says, go call your husband. She had been using her body to worship people, basically. The men she was sleeping with who weren't her husband. Five, six times at least we're having a reference to. She's using her body absolutely not what it's for. That's called adultery. Do we ever use our bodies for not what they're for? I seem to remember some guy in a sermon uh, series we went through who said that our bodies to, were to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You know what you, it's called when you use your body for something other than being holy and pleasing to God? It's called spiritual adultery. There's a book of Hosea that talks a whole lot about that. In fact, the whole Bible talks about spiritual adultery. And guess what God does to people who commit spiritual adultery? He forgives them. But when you do that, you're kind of down and out. A lot worse than this woman in Samaria. Who does Jesus come to pursue? The down and outs. The sick. And he pursues them. First thing you need to realize, folks, is we're down and outs. That's hard to realize, isn't it? Especially as Americans who have so much stuff, kind of like we were talking about before. It's hard to understand our situation in life. And it leads to a problem with what we do when Jesus finds us. If we don't realize we're down and out, we just kind of mix a little bit of Jesus in with what we got going. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I accept him. I'll pick and choose these parts of who Jesus is and I'll mix it in with my life. Well, that's kind of what the Samaritans did. They picked and choose and they created a, a false god. 
we often worship a Jesus that we make up on our own. A little tiny one. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Please, somebody find me. Like, gee, I think sometimes, if I'm honest, I can turn Jesus into a two-foot leprechaun. Choose me, choose me, choose, don't choose that, don't go there, choose me, choose me. And he's like jumping up and down all hyper. No. Jesus is big. You know a little leprechaun. He doesn't plead, pick me, pick me, pick me, please, I need friends, pick me. He looks down with sympathy, and he says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. And we should look up and say, why did you choose me? I don't deserve it. I'm down and out. He says, yes, you are. And that's why I came down to pick you up. You understand that? And when we think of Jesus as a pick me, pick me, pick me, what do we do when we come to faith? Not a whole lot, because we're worshiping a two-foot leprechaun. You want to tell anyone I worship a two-foot leprechaun who's lost in the woods, pleading for people to come and follow him? What kind of God do you worship? You want to tell anyone about that? But if you worship God, who he really is, the big version, the unadulterated version, the genuine one, you understand who you are and who he is. You understand, like the woman, she goes and she leaves her water jar. Why does she leave her water jar? You need, I'd be like, you need the water jar! Quick, come back! You're going to be hot and thirsty! She runs off, you know why? Because when you know Jesus, worldly possessions mean nothing. Nothing. You don't worry about him. Because he'll, he's told her, I'll give you living water. He'll bring the jar back to her. He'll hold it till she comes back. When we really love Jesus, the worldly possessions scrap them. They're irrelevant compared to God. What does she do? She runs into town. Guys, this guy told me everything wrong I've ever did. Do you ever tell people that? I, I know a man who is God who knows everything wrong I ever did. Now, see, we do it like this. I have my act together. I am a whole person. I have everything under control. And you, too, can have everything under control. This is how we do sermons. Do you want to have a better, more complete life? Come to Jesus. What it really should be like, are you tremendously screwed up and sick and down and out? I got Jesus for you. Do you want to have more pleasurable and stuff in life? Come to Jesus. I think Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is not Jesus, the leprechaun. You understand that? I love the C.S. Lewis illustration of comparing us to people who live in the, in the gutter of a slum, playing with the mud, who've been invited to go to the villa at the seashore. Okay? You and I often sit in the, the gutter, but we know about the villa at the seashore. We're just scared to go because what if it lets us down? We prefer to play in the safety of the muck than to go to the villa at the seashore. And it's hard to tell people to go to the villa when we've never fully been there ourselves. We may have caught a distant glimpse of it and think, wow, that looks cool. And we turn to the person sitting in the gutter next to us and say, hey, you should go check it out. And what they're thinking is, I'd love to, but why don't you go? Why would I go if you didn't go? When we go to the villa at the seashore, we won't come back to the, to the gutter in the slum, except to get people out of the gutter. Do you understand that? But we live in the gutter of the slum, and we're happy as could be like a little kid playing in dirt. Yeah, I'll risk the illustration. It just popped to mind. Little kids like to play with nasty stuff. My eldest, when he was real little, one day unlatched a diaper during nap time and had a grand old time in his crib. My nephew recently did the same thing. My sister saw on the monitor and came running in. They're having fun! 
Now, please don't answer this question, but I'm assuming no one still does that today. Uh, you know, I'm hoping no one yesterday, what, what did you do yesterday? Oh my gosh, I had the greatest time smearing walls. And we don't think that's fun because we've matured. We understand that's nasty. We often live life like a 12-month-old sitting in a crib painting. It's fun. Everybody's doing it. And then one day, someone pulls us out of the crib and cleans us up. And, ooh, it smells so much better. And, oh, this is real fun. But we prefer the mess in the crib. We prefer the mess in the crib because we don't understand the mess that we're living in. And it's not until we come out that Jesus becomes Jesus and not little Jesus. And when we understand that, if we truly left the gutter and went to the villa, if we truly lived a John 10.10 life, a life to the fullest, if we truly understood and believed that we were who God says we are and that He is who He says He is, I can guarantee you this, you would be unable to help but tell everyone you knew about Jesus. You would run and leave your water jar, you would tell everybody everything that was wrong with you. You know why? Because it was fixed. This is how we try to live life, like a taped up banana. This is how God wants us to live life, like a put back together, fixed up, healed banana. We tell the world, look how great Jesus is. He taped me up. They're thinking, that looks nasty. I don't want to be taped up. We're supposed to show them, John 10.10, 10, life to the fullest as it was meant to be lived. And as we do that, as we go to the villa, we're not trying to convince everybody to come. We're telling them about where we've been. We'll let God do the convicting and the convincing. The woman leaves her water jar. The woman drinks of the living water. What does that mean to drink the living water? How do you get Jesus in a cup and through a straw? Isn't that, isn't that a little awkward? I drank Jesus' beverage, the greatest energy drink ever. You drink the living water by trusting in Jesus, by believing in Him. And when you do, He says, you will never thirst. You understand? That doesn't mean you can walk through the desert with a camel and you'll be fine without water. It's talking about spiritual thirst, spiritual hunger. You know how people go through life always with this, this sense of emptiness and needing more. They want change and they want stuff and they have to buy stuff to feel good. And we just keep putting stuff in. We're trying to, we're trying to fill a, a, a hole that's not going to be filled with stuff. It's only going to be filled with God, with, with living water. And when we drink of it and we trust in Jesus, we don't thirst, we don't hunger, and we begin to know true joy. But in order to do that, you've got to understand who you are. You've got to understand who Jesus is. And now let's wrap it up with how others respond. This woman runs into town. They know this woman, right? She's going by herself at noon because people know her. She comes running into town, and as she's sitting there going, Oh boy, what are they going to think? Crazy adulterous lady running into town, hollering in the middle of the day with no water jar. She runs into town, and she tells people about Jesus. I met a guy who I think is the Messiah. If you were Jesus, wouldn't you tell the Pharisees, I am the Messiah. Go and tell everyone. Wouldn't you tell, like, wouldn't you go in and maybe, you know, this is during the Roman times, right? God could have come anywhere. Why not come in the capital? Go talk to the emperor. I am God. Wow, he is. I make an edict for all of Rome that we will worship not me, but Jesus. That, that would work better. He picks a measly little Samaritan lady who's outcast from the Samaritans and tells her, I'm the Messiah, go tell people. I notice he didn't tell her to go tell people. She just knew to go tell people. She couldn't help herself. That seemed a little bit backwards. Who does God pick to go and tell people? 
the down and outs. He's not looking for powerful people. He's looking for obedient people. You look down a little further. I'm not going to finish the story today. You'll see why. But it says in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Luke 10, verse 2 tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? Few. You know why the workers are few? Because a lot of the workers are looking at Jesus down here. Pick me, pick me, pick me. And he's telling us, go tell somebody to pick me. Go tell somebody to pick me. And we're thinking, I know I'm supposed to say I love you, and I know I'm supposed to obey you, but you're a tiny little leprechaun. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell people about the little leprechaun that I love. The big Jesus has workers. Not workers who say, I'm ready. I'm able. I know what i got to do. I know how to bring people to faith. Let's go get them. He has people who look up and they say, you know what? I can't do this. I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. I don't have the faith. But I have trust in Christ. I'll lean on Him. I'll believe that He says He'll do what He can do. And I'll tell Him what I know. I know that I'm a down and out living in the gutter. And that a guy came down who was God and He lifted me up out of the gutter. And He restored me and He took me to the villa at the seashore. And all my friends and family and the people I know sit in the filth and the muck and the mire of the gutter. And He wants me to go tell them they can leave because He'll pull them out and put them at the villa too. Why would you not tell somebody that? I think it begins with not understanding who we really are. As we realize we're laying on the side of the road, covered in junk, we can't help but go and tell people about Jesus. So the Samaritan woman, we don't know her name, we don't know much about her, other than she was a down and out. She was a Samaritan. She was as low as you could go in the Jewish realm of things. She was outcast by the Samaritan people. She just got a little lower than as low as you could go. And the Jewish Messiah came, God in the flesh, to meet this lady at high noon at a well and said to her, Ma'am, can I have a drink? Jesus has pursued every one of us. Those of us who love Jesus, God has come down in the flesh. In a little bit we're going to get into the Christmas season, right? You know what happened? You know why Jesus was born on Christmas morning? Because he had a divinely orchestrated meeting with us. He came down from heaven, took on the form of a human, fully human, fully God, and pursued us. We didn't find him, he found us. When you read closely in the text, you'll see that. He opens our eyes. But he came down and pursued us. Why did he pursue us? Not because he was building a mighty force to, to, to take over the world. That person looks good. That person has what I need. I need that person's assets and that person's clever speech and that person's relational circles and we can do this. No. He came down and he took the sick and down and outs. Now, do you want to admit you're sick and down and out? Not really. That's contrary to our nature. We're self-confident, whole, powerful, able people. We can do whatever we set our minds to, right? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the exact opposite. You don't want to be self-confident. We talked about this months ago. You want to be God-confident. Yeah, you can do whatever you set your mind to, but what can you do apart from Christ? Nothing pleasing to God. When we live a life of complete surrender to God, wow, then we start doing crazy stuff. Then we start doing amazing stuff. We can go into town and yell, here's Jesus. Now listen to this. The woman went and a lot of people came to hear Jesus, right? And a lot of people came to believe in Jesus. But not everybody did. If we're going to be honest with one another, sometimes we tell people about Jesus. And people can laugh at us. People can say, you're crazy. People could say, wow, you're flat out weird. 
Does that matter? Do you think Jesus, we get to heaven, he's got a, a big old, you know, one of those business checkbooks with the, the three-ring binder, and he's like, let me see my ledger. You've only led one person to faith in 82 years. I give you $17. He writes us a check. And then Billy Graham comes in. He's like, William Graham, good job. $17 billion for you. Do you think God works on a commission? I mean, do you think that he's impressed with, with one person over another for the number of people that came to faith because they were the final person on the chain that, that reaped the harvest? Or is he pleased with faithfulness to go and tell? That's what the answer is. So if we tell people and they don't want to come to the villa at the seashore, that's okay. If we tell people and they laugh at us, that's all right. If we tell people and they, they just never want to interact with us again, that's all right. Because you know what we did? We told people. But it's going to be effective not when you tell people because it's something you know in your brain and you want to communicate a fact. We tell people because we're living it out. And we experience the reality of who we are and who God is and what God has to offer us. And then we can't help but tell people. And that becomes the focus of our life. It becomes the most important thing to us. So think about in your life, where's your water jar? What are you hanging on to so tight as you're running around trying to tell people about Jesus that it holds you back? And look at the woman of Samaria. Understand, we are who she is. Jesus came down in hot pursuit of us. And as we understand that, we proclaim at the top of our lungs who he is, and we leave the results to him. We're going to finish up this next time. I was going to cram this all into one sermon. Can't do it. We're not getting through all 40-some-odd verses today. We're getting through 30. That's pretty good, though. We'll finish up the rest of it next time. But understand this. The most important thing we could do in our faith is allow God to convict us that we laying on the side of a road, that he came down to get us. We don't work our way up to him. He worked his way down to us. And as we understand that and trust it and live a life based on that, I can make you this guarantee. Very few things in life can be guaranteed other than death and taxes. John 10.10 can be guaranteed. You can live life to the fullest. You can be utterly amazed by God if you're willing to accept who you are and who he is, realizing he's not the leprechaun. He's the king of the universe, the living water. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for the fact that it is you who pursues us, that you are not lost, needing us to find you, that you don't live a life of, of sorrow and feeling inadequate because enough people don't love you, that you are God, you are perfect, you are complete. You don't need us, you choose us. I thank you for the fact, Lord, that, that the moment you created everything, you knew that at 12 o'clock, on whatever day this was, you'd be meeting a lady, a down and out, an outcast. I thank you for the fact that every one of us who you know, every one of us you do know, I thank you for the fact that you've come to pursue us. I thank you for the fact that you have found us, that you've opened our eyes to the truth. I thank you for the fact you invite us into your work to tell other people about you, to show them who you are, to show them the life that you desire to give to people. I thank you for the fact that you don't, you don't rank us based off of our productivity, but you just care about our faithfulness. That you will use our faithfulness in amazing ways, but you use it through your strength and your power. And God, I pray, starting this very moment, for all of us, we would begin to live our lives in such a way that they could only be done by you. That we would live lives of complete surrender where we were completely dependent upon you to intervene, to sustain us. 
that we laid it all on the line for you in such a way that only you could make whatever it is happen. And I pray that as we do that, you would bring many people to faith, that you would use us as a woman of Samaria, that you would give us the courage that comes only through faith in you, that comes only from drinking the living water, to run out into the town, to run out into the world and tell everyone we know that we've met a man who was a prophet, but in fact who was a Messiah. God, you've come and pursued us to tell not just this woman in Samaria, but each and every one of us that you are the Christ. You are the living God who came down, the great banana saver, the one who came down to heal us all, to cure us all, to, to have God remove our iniquities from upon us. You took the wrath of God upon yourself, and we can never fully understand why, other than the fact that you love us beyond comprehension. God, I pray you would make yourself seem bigger to us, that you would, that you would uh, remove the vision of a leprechaun and replace it with the true God, that you would remove the golden chaos from our life that we worship and give us a few, full view of you, that you would take away those utensils of, of earthly value from the priority in our life and put yourself fully there. And God, give us the strength and the confidence to trust you enough to do this knowing that we will have joy, that we will have life to the fullest, that we will no longer thirst or hunger, that we will know true joy, and that as we do, the world will look at us and understand who you are through your light which shines through us. God, thank you for the woman of Samaria. But more importantly, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for coming down. Thank you for pursuing us. And most importantly, God, thank you for finding us. Help us to spend our days in marvel of why you chose to find us and help us live in worship of you because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.